This morning I'm in the fifth week of a sermon series I'm doing through the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians entitled Strength and Weakness. If you're unfamiliar with this book, it was written by the Apostle Paul, one of the early Christians, to a church that he started in Corinth, part of ancient Greece, part of the, the Roman Empire in those days. He started the church around the year 50 AD, and after building up the church, he moved on to start other churches. And when he got wind of all the crazy things that were going on in the church, he wrote a few letters and made a couple more visits to try to set things in order. Um, one of the reasons that things had become strained was because there were some false teachers who had come in and had been just throwing some shade on Paul and his ministry because of his suffering, because he seemed so ordinary, he wasn't as put together as they were. And so unfortunately, a lot of this letter is Paul having to defend himself. And you're going to see, even in this passage today, there's a little bit in the beginning of him again having to defend himself and his ministry. Um, we're going to be in chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 2. This passage, more than just about any other passage in the Bible, really lays out the central message of Christianity. Really lays out what the gospel is all about, what it means to know God and how that transforms our lives. So we're going to read the whole passage and then we'll look more specifically at what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means for us. So chapter 5 verse 11 to chapter 6 verse 2. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we believe that you speak to us through your word, even today. And we pray that you would give us the ears to hear and the heart to respond to whatever it is you have to say to us today. Lift the veil that we all might see you. Give us spiritual sight to see and to know you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned earlier, he begins this section again by trying to defend himself against these false teachers who have come against him and are trying to divide his relationship with the Corinthians. But then after that, this passage just lays out so well the main Christian message, what it means to know and follow God, the difference that it makes that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again. And can I please implore you, as he used the word there, implore you 
to do all you can to pay attention this morning, to do all you can to hear these words, to take them to heart, to take notes, to, 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 whether it's on a phone or with a pen, to take notes, to listen, to consider these words because these are so important. These words are transformative if you will take them to heart. The main word I would say in this passage that happens again and again is the word reconciliation. If you look again at verses, uh, verses 18 to 20, he says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So if that word is new to you or unfamiliar, reconciliation, it's the restoration of the relationship between individuals or between a person and God. It's a change from enmity, which is the state of being opposed or hostile to something, to friendship. That's what reconciliation is. It implies that the relationship between us and God is not in a good place, right? We, we don't, we're not born right with God. We're not born friends with God. That there's something wrong with our relationship with God. There's a hostility. There's an opposition. There's an enmity there between us, between humanity and God. That someone needs to do something about it. The Bible talks about the word sin. That's, that's what has gone wrong, that we are rebels against the holy God, that we have chosen to go our own way and do our own thing. And that as a result, we are headed for a lifetime and an afterlife of eternal separation from God and from all that is good. That's the terrible news, that this enmity, this opposition is part of all of our existence and that something needs to happen. Otherwise, that's the direction that we're heading. Listen to John 3, 16 to 18. John 3, 16, of course, is a very familiar verse, but if you continue reading, it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So these are the words of Jesus proclaiming God's love for the world that he has sent his Son to do something about the enmity, the opposition, the hostility. And that all who put their faith in Jesus and believe in him, he says, will not perish but have eternal life. But, he says, those who do not receive Jesus, those who do not believe in him, he says, they stand condemned already. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, 6 through 10. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. See what he calls you there? He says, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? There's that word again, reconciled. 
So this is saying the exact same thing that Jesus said in John 3, 16 to 18. There's hostility, there's opposition that by our sin and our rebellion, that we are separated from a holy God and we are heading to hell, to an eternal separation from God. And the only way to save us, says, is that God loved us and sent his son Jesus to live and die for us, to offer us a way to be right with him. And this is critical because none of you can save yourself by your own good works, by your own religiosity, by anything that you can do. Romans 3, 19 to 26 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everyone in the whole world. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter where you live, where you grew up, what's your background, how good or bad you are. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's a lot of theological words I'm going to be unpacking soon, don't worry. But the main point I hope you are hearing clearly is that there is a hostility. That's why Paul uses the word reconciliation again and again to to talk about what our relationship with God is about because reconciliation implies that there was a hostility. There was a separation that something needed to happen to bring us back to God. That no one on their own is born into a relationship with God. There's no other way to be saved other than Jesus and his death. Let me share a few verses. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in Acts 4.12, this is Peter preaching to the crowd there in Jerusalem. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is no other way to bridge the gap between a holy God and our sin than the one that God has provided, Jesus and his death. And as I say that, I know, I am sure that there are people who hear that, who have a hard time hearing that, right? Have a difficult time hearing that. We want to believe that there are many paths to God, that there are many ways to be right with God, that as long as we live a good life, that God's going to say, yeah, don't add a boy, add a girl. You know, you tried really hard. But that is not the witness of the Bible. That's not what Paul is saying. It's not what Jesus says. It's not at all what God says through his word. That there is a holy God and no one on their own good works is ever going to reach him. No one's going to stand before God and give him their resume and have God say, great job, you made it in. But there is a way to be right with God that doesn't depend on how good you are. It depends on faith in Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life we couldn't live and then died the sacrificial death on the cross in our place. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to God, no way to the Father except through me. So now that we've established what God did in Jesus, look at what Paul says in this passage about 
what Jesus' death means for us. There's three things in particular that Jesus' death accomplishes for us, does for us, that I think, hopefully, if you've been a part of this church, these are going to be familiar to you, but they're so important to know. The first is this, justification. That, that word showed up a lot in the passages I was reading, justify, justification. Justification is the legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. Righteousness you could think of as being in a right relationship with God, that he sees us as perfect in his sight, as being in a right relationship with him. This is God as judge declaring us not guilty, pardoning our sin, taking our sins and putting them on Jesus and giving us his righteousness. These were a few of the verses that showed up in that 2 Corinthians 5 passage. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These are some of the clearest statements in the Bible on justification. That when you come to faith in Jesus, the first thing that he does, one of, the, one of the things he does, is that your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. They're all put on Jesus. He takes the punishment that you deserve, and you receive his righteousness, his right standing with God, the right relationship with God that you did not deserve, that you didn't earn. Isn't that amazing? Do not let this become, yeah, I heard this before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard this before. This is a miracle. That when you put your faith in Jesus, he takes your sin, the punishment you deserved, on the cross. And he gives you his righteousness. That's justification. God is judge declaring you not guilty. Righteous in his sight. But that's not all that God does through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. After all, I mean, any judge could declare someone not guilty, but not necessarily enter into a relationship with you know, the one who's been pardoned. But Jesus and the Father not only declare us not guilty, but they also, we are adopted. There's justification and there's adoption. This is the act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. This is God as Father. So he's not just a judge declaring you not guilty. I mean, that's great. That's amazing, but it's very impersonal. But he's also a Father, welcoming you into his family as his beloved child. In verse 18 and 19 again, it says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. He's bringing you into right relationship with him. There's a few passages that really highlight this element of adoption. John 1, 12 to 13 says, Yet to all who received him, this is Jesus, of course, to all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And Romans 8, 15 to 17, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. It's a very intimate name. Daddy, Papa. 
that we can come to the God of the universe with that kind of familiarity, that kind of intimacy, because we've been adopted as beloved children. We're not approaching him as a judge. We're approaching him as his child. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. As if that were not enough, okay? You've been forgiven. Everything you've ever done, everything you ever will do has been forgiven. And you have been given a right relationship with God. You've been brought in as a child who can come to God as as a beloved son or daughter to their father who loves them. And then... Thirdly, regeneration. This is the third thing. Not only pardon, not only relationship, but also regeneration. The act of God by which he imparts spiritual, eternal life to us. This is God as heart surgeon. God as judge, God as father, God as heart surgeon. Replacing our heart of stone that didn't know him and did not respond to him with a heart that knows him, loves him, responds to him. It's a great verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. That God has done something new for us in Jesus Christ. That you were spiritually dead. And that God has made you spiritually alive. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Notice the contrast in this passage. He's not saying, once you were bad, you were bad people, and now you're good people. You've changed your life, and now you're good, and now God accepts you. He doesn't say, once you were ignorant, you were dumb, but now you're wise and enlightened, and now you you know things about God. He says, you were dead. You were spiritually dead. And there was nothing you could do to make yourself alive. But God in his great mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. This is regeneration. This is when we come to faith, he gives us a new heart, new spirit. Puts his Holy Spirit in us. Gives us his life, eternal life. Listen to how Jesus says it in John 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. This is the language of regeneration. This is not that there's a specific denomination, the born-agains, you know. This is him saying that, in, that no one by their natural birth is right with God. And he's saying this to Nicodemus, a Pharisee who trusted in his lineage as a child of Abraham. And he's coming to this guy and he's saying, your birth counts for nothing. Just, just because you're born to 
parents who believe it doesn't mean anything. And any children who are listening to this need to know that as well. Just because you are born to a father or a mother who believes in God, who trusts in Jesus, does not make you a Christian. It says you must be born again. You must be born of spirit. You must be regenerated. You must come to faith. And he must give you spiritual life. It's not going to come through your parents. This is the language of regeneration. Jesus is saying you must be born again, that your physical birth counts for nothing. It's a spiritual birth. When you come to faith in Jesus, that he gives you his spiritual life, eternal life. This is exactly what was prophesied in the Old Testament in Ezekiel, where, Jesus, where God said, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you, and I will move you to follow my decrees, and be careful to keep my laws. So he gives us a new heart, a new spirit. He gives us his eternal life through the Holy Spirit. This is eternal life, John 17, 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He says that's eternal life. It's knowing God. It's not just life after death. That's when we're going to have it to the fullest, but it begins now. When you come to faith in Jesus, you have eternal life. You know God. Not as perfectly as you will on that day, but you have eternal life. You know God. You know Jesus. One of the best analogies I've used to, to explain eternal life, because it's not just life after death. It's a quality of life. So think about the difference between you know, different life forms or things on earth, right? The difference between a rock and a plant and how a plant is more sensitive to its environment than a rock is. It can sense light, it can sense the wind, it can sense things like that in a way a rock can't. But then you think of the difference in quality of life between a plant and an animal, right? And how plants can sense some things, but animals have such a higher consciousness of the world. And then the difference between, say, the cat and a human being and how we have such a great, greater consciousness of the world that can interact with the world in such a, a, a more advanced way than any animal can. Eternal life is that next level. It's where God puts his Holy Spirit in you and you have a consciousness of God and you can see the world in a way that you couldn't beforehand. That's eternal life. That you might know God, have a consciousness of him, see things that you didn't see before, know him in a way you didn't, see the world in a way you didn't. That's what happens when you come to faith in Jesus. Excuse me, you are justified that's God as judge declaring you not guilty, giving you Christ's righteousness. You're adopted. God as Father bringing you into his family so that you can approach him not as some far off being in the sky or some judge, some king, but as a loving father. And regeneration that God has given you new heart, new spirit, put his eternal life, his spirit of God in you. So there's three things that this does according to Paul in this passage, three ways that this transforms us. First, he says this, Christ's love compels us, it's a great word, compels us to live for him. He says this, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And I tell you, this passage is just full of some incredible verses that just lay it out so clearly. He says, when we come to faith, he puts his Holy Spirit in us and it changes our motivation. The motivation of our hearts is not 
to get things of this world. Motivation of our heart is not guilt, that we're going after God because of guilt or fear or to earn anything. It says the primary motivation becomes the love of Christ. Amen? The primary motivation of our life becomes his love. That as we understand his love for us, we are transformed and that becomes the thing that drives us. This is so hard sometimes to make people understand who do not believe that, that we're not here because we feel guilty. We're not here because we're trying to earn points with God. We're here because we've been loved and we love him and we want to worship him. We want to love him because of how great he is. That's the compelling motivator of our lives is his love. And another, another uh, way of, of the, another thing that compelling means is that it constrains us. It motivates us and it constrains us. It's like the barriers, right? That his love, even though it has set us free, even though it, by his salvation that we are free from sin, past, present, and future, I could go do anything I want because he's forgiven me. It says his love constrains me. I don't want to go do other things because he loves me. And I know he has life to the full for me. So why would I want to go off and do things that are against his will when I know that they're going to bring death? Because he loves me. And that's the thing that constrains me, that compels me, that motivates me. Think of Titus 2, 11 and 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Right? He said it's not the guilt, the fear that causes us to say no to ungodliness and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. He says it's the grace of God. It's his undeserved favor. It's his love. And the more that we see that he's a God of love, the more we're like, I'm following you. I'm trusting in you. Why would I want to go over after anything else when I could go after you and have more of your love? Second thing he says, the second way the gospel transforms us, he says in this passage, is that we see everything differently. We see everything and everyone differently. In verse 16, he says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. This was a main part of the sermon last week about spiritual vision. It's like, now that I have been transformed by his gospel, now that I believe, I don't see things the way I used to see them. I used to see Jesus as a blasphemer, as, as someone who was opposed to God, and now I see him as the Savior, Lord. People today sometimes see God, Jesus maybe as a good teacher, right? Who maybe died a, a sad death, but he's a good teacher. And, but we don't see him that way anymore. We don't see him the way the world sees him. We see him as Lord and Savior. Remember that the, the Corinthians were looking at Paul and seeing him as some ordinary man, not quite as impressive as the other teachers. It's like we don't see people the way the world sees people anymore. Now we see Paul as this man of God who is following the footsteps of Jesus, willing to suffer and sacrifice his life out of his love for other people. We don't see people. We don't see the world the way we used to. We see the world as fallen, but going to be redeemed. We see 
our possessions and our money not as things that we need to chase after, but as things that are going to pass away in the end, that are ours to be used, resources to be used for God's kingdom. We don't see the world the way we used to. We don't look to people around us the way we used to. These are your family, you know? These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't see people the way we used to. Listen to how C.S. Lewis put it in The Weight of Glory, his encouragement on how we see other people now that we are in Christ. He says this, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare." All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspe circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. See what he's getting at there? Saying you, you walk by people on the street and you just see, you know, an average person. Maybe you evaluate them on how they look, how they're dressed. And he says, we don't see people that way any longer in Christ. We see people who are heading to one of two directions, one of two destinations. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And we, by our interaction with them, can help them in one of those two directions. We don't see as the world sees. We see everything and everyone differently. What do you think it would look like to see people that way? To truly see people the way God sees them, the way C.S. Lewis is pointing out here? I think it would lead us to the last point, which is this. We are sent out as ambassadors with a ministry of reconciliation. Again, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. If you are sitting next to people who are not mere mortals, if everyone you interact with every day is not a mere mortal, but someone who will live forever, either as an immortal horror or an everlasting splendor, then how should we conduct ourselves? He says we should be God's ambassadors for his ministry of reconciliation, imploring others be reconciled to God, sharing the gospel, praying for people, Inviting them to relationship with God. This has always been the commission. Jesus, after he rose from the dead, came to his disciples and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You have been called to be an ambassador to bring the gospel to the world, to your neighborhood, to your family, to your friends, to your school. And I know you know this, so many of you, but pray that God would give us the passion, the sight, the vision necessary for this, that we would see people not as the world sees them, but see as God sees people who are heading to one of two destinations and that by our interaction with them, we can help them in one of two directions. God has given you the ministry of reconciliation, sent you out as an ambassador. Paul ends the section with these stirring words in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the day of salvation. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. Today, (laughs) saying now is the day of salvation. Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done in order for you to be saved. All that is left is for you to receive the gift of grace. It says, don't receive God's gift of grace in vain. uh, Thanks, Jesus, but I'm good, right? Now is the day of salvation. If you do not know him, today is the day. I hope I have laid this out as clearly as possible of what God has done in Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection, what that means for us, justification, adoption, regeneration, what the implications are, that then we have this love that compels and motivates us, that we see the world in a way that we never saw it before, that we have a purpose and a mission. Today is the day of salvation. Give your life to Christ. Receive him as your savior. And if you already know him, then pray that he would give you this spiritual sight for those who don't know him, this kind of passion. That everyone you meet is heading in one of two directions and that you have the opportunity by your interaction with them to help them in one of those two directions. And God has given you the ministry of reconciliation to go and encourage and implore others to be reconciled to God. If you have never given your life to Christ, if you've never come in a relationship, if you, if all of this, you're not sure it makes sense, you're not sure you see what I'm talking about here, you're not sure you've experienced that kind of spiritual sight and, and known God in that way, then can I encourage you to pray this prayer with me? Father, I confess to you that I am a sinner a rebel against a holy God, and that I am deserving of eternal separation from you. But I believe that Jesus died for me, that you put my sins on him and offer me his righteousness, a right relationship with you, not because of my good works, but because of his loving sacrifice. I believe that in you is found eternal life, life to the full. Today, I turn from my sinful, self-centered way of life and I trust in you as my Savior and Lord and commit my life to you. Open my heart that I might see and know you and live for you. Amen. Let me pray. 
God, I pray for all who do not know you, who have been here today, that you would lift the veil and reveal yourself to them, that they would see your glory and feel and experience your love and that you would transform them forever. Pray for salvations upon salvations and testimonies of people who have given their life to you and found you, God. And Lord, we pray for those of us who already know you. Forgive us, Lord, for our apathy towards those who don't know you. Forgive us for our fears and our self-centeredness. You've called us to be ambassadors with a ministry of reconciliation. And we pray, God, that you would give us boldness and courage to share the gospel with those who don't know you. And that as we do that, Lord, you would do the spiritual work that we cannot do and bring people to faith in you. We pray for revival, Lord. We pray for revival. We pray for boldness. We pray that you would be glorified through our lives and through this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond in worship.